Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows eco-socialist feminism is the only way to have a prosperous future. Today we have Zoe, Laura, and Kellen. We're going to be talking about the environment. Woo! Uh, <laughs> including all things climate change, eco-socialism, youth strikes, and the Green New Deal. To help us understand all of this, we have two brilliant guests, climate and U.S. politics journalist Kate Arnoff and professor of social ecology and ecological economics Julia Steinberger. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, do you both want to introduce yourselves and explain how you got into the climate-related work that you do? You go first, Kate. <laughs> well, um, cool. It's so fun to be here. Um, yeah, so uh, my name's Kate Aronoff, as you said, um, and uh, I first got into climate stuff mostly through working on fossil fuel divestment in college, so that's a... Uh, movement to get colleges and universities to um, take their investments, their endowments, uh, out of fossil fuel companies. Uh, so mostly, uh, yeah, mostly, mostly sort of um, started reading about a lot of uh, climate science but but more so sort of thinking about extraction through that I got to go on a trip to visit folks who are um, resisting mountaintop removal coal mining in West Virginia um, and just sort of uh, yeah it was the first time I sort of connected some dots between like uh, labor and uh, extraction and climate change and just all sort of, you know, came to a head. Um, and yeah, and I've been sort of thinking about it ever since. And I, uh, started writing about climate politics after I graduated from college. Um, and that is kind of where, uh, what I've been doing, I've been doing since then. Fuck yeah. And I guess, uh, so my name's Julia Steinberger and I started out as a physicist, which is just sort Ooh. of horrific. <laughs> uh, but there I was doing my PhD in physics and being less and less enchanted with it as time grew on, which was actually a labor issue. We might get into that. Uh, and I was cheap labor, basically. But mm -hmm. um, one of the things that my university allowed us to do is to run a film series as part of a student activist group. And so I was running a film series on globalization and its issues. And one of the things that became very clear was that the environmental and the social and the economic side were all bound together in very bad directions. And so I became interested in learning more about that. So after my PhD, I went back to school, like you do, and I took classes. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know. And, uh, and I uh, took classes in ecological economics. Mm, and wow. uh, for me, that was a good entry point because it's a real, it at least has the, the goal of being a systems perspective. Um, it falls short, which we might also talk about in several ways. Um, but here I am. So now I'm, I'm doing this research and I try to understand how much resource, how societies could interact differently with the environment in terms of the resource requirements to live a decent life. And the point is that it has very little to do with technology and a lot to do with social organization and politics and the economy. 
and that real alternatives can exist in the system. So there you go. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I just, that's a great way to start us off, but please continue. Sorry. Oh yeah, I guess I should say that I'm an IPCC lead author, so I'm a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which makes assessment reports for the government. So I haven't yet to write a single word, um, <laughs> but, uh, because it's for the next one. But just to make it clear, I do not speak in the name of the IPCC in this podcast. Nobody gets to speak in the name of the IPCC. The text speaks for itself. Um, but I know a bit about climate science, and I have I have opinions, and these opinions are my own. Fuck yeah. So, and we appreciate yeah. your opinions. My tweets do not reflect the views of my employer. <laughs> <laughs> really not. Especially not the tweets where I'm yelling at my employer. Yes, yes. I have a lot of those too. It's fine. Oh, man. Yeah, so before we get into um, a bunch of questions we have for both of you, I just wanted to read a brief definition of eco-socialism Um because it's going to come up a lot in our discussion, I just want to make sure everyone listening has just kind of like the base understanding of what we're referencing. Um, so I took this from the DSA Eco-Socialist website, which describes it as a framework for understanding the, total the totality of capitalism as well as transform transformative vision of the future. Eco-Socialists understand the social injustice and environmental degradation are the outcome of the worldwide system of production driven by the pursuit of profit, capitalism. Therefore, the liberation of people and the planet are necessarily intertwined and dependent on the dismantling of our, our on the dismantling of our exploitative exploitative <laughs> capitalist production process and the remaking of society to serve the needs of people and planet, not profit. So, without further ado, here we go. So, I think a good place to start is um, with laying a, sort of a, a baseline for our listeners as the world gets warmer. How is it going to change? What sort of climate can we expect in our future? So I guess I can say a few words about this. But the, uh, So this is Julia. And I think that um, we can expect some general things. And it's, it's actually been laid out in a lot more specificity in the 2018 Climate Assessment Report for the U.S. specifically. So for U.S. listeners, there's a whole entire specific report that's very up-to-date that contains a lot of this information. That's the good news. The bad news is it's 1,656 pages long. Oh. <laughs> but those, it's divided into chap topical chapters, so you can really look at what you're interested in. And the summary is extremely readable and quite short. But um, So I'm just going to quote one part of the summary uh, from this, uh, the U.S. 2018 Climate Assessment Report that says, future climate change is expected to further disrupt many areas of life exacerbating existing challenges to prosperity posed by aging and deteriorating infrastructure, stressed ecosystems, and economic inequality. Impacts within and across regions will not be distributed equally. People who are already vulnerable, including lower income and other marginalized communities, will have lower capacity to prepare for and cope with extreme weather and climate-related events and are expected to experience greater impacts. And I think that if we look at, so end quote, I think if we look at what's happened in places like Puerto Rico, that is already extremely true. So we don't need to sort of port that into the future. The the, the impacts that climate change will have are, are basically exacerbating weather variability. Um, so much longer heat waves, worse floods. Uh, one of the reasons we, get, we, we expect worse floods is because hotter air can carry more moisture. So you just get these 
absolute downpours uh, that are unprecedented in their in their magnitude because of the the hotter air. Um, we get stronger hurricanes like Hurricane Michael. We get longer hurricane seasons just because of hotter uh, seawater. And um, all of these things come together often in devastating combinations like a long dry season, long hot dry season, which causes fires in California, then followed by these you know, downpours that cause mudslides on degraded terrain where there's no trees to hold the mud back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is something that uh, they've seen uh, year on year in the past couple of years. So we're we're, we're facing a very um, horrific future in that sense. Uh, it's it's hard to talk about because I we know that there's misery built into the pipeline. We know that there's death built into this pipeline, um, and it's going to be happening. Every area will be touched. Every person will be touched. And we're already being touched. For instance, for our crops, that's one of the things that really is terrifying. We're already seeing the effects of a hotter climate on crop yields so that the staples that we rely upon for nourishing the seven, eight, whatever billion people on the planet, uh, we're already noticing that those crops are starting to yield uh, less than they would otherwise. And I think that one of the things to realize is that we all depend on a very few strains of staple crops from the Green Revolution. And those strains of crops are optimized for yield. They're great. They yield lots of lots and lots of nutrition, but they're only adapted to survive in narrow conditions of climate and precipitation. And that's what we're moving away from. We've already moved out of the Holocene, which is the the climate era where we developed agriculture. So we're moving into a climate that no plant and no person has ever known for the past 12,000 years. And these plants certainly not. So we're, we're, and for instance, in the UK last year, um, because the summer was so variable in its in its climate, um, the average vegetable size went down, and there was a decrease in the size of of fries mm. in the UK. Mm. Oh which, wow! Yeah, which is which is uh, so. So you know, the average vegetable size went down, the average fry size went down, which is like, <laughs> if that's not a national disaster and, and an emergency, <laughs> I don't know what is right. But um, so so we're facing these these really um, it's 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 a tough future and it could get a lot worse than it is already. So we've already built a certain amount of warming into the pipeline. We can count on a bit on more coming. But what we do in the next few years is really going to determine um, how bad it gets. It could get extremely bad indeed. Hmm. I'm sorry yeah. for that. That was that was that cheerful. This is, this is not going to be a cheerful episode. Uh, well, the eco-socialism part, you know, mm-hmm. that yeah. might be cheerful. For sure. Um, Kate, I didn't know if you also wanted to respond before we kind of went into the next thing. Yeah, I don't I don't have um, much to add. And, and this is definitely, you know, uh, this is definitely Julia's area of expertise more than, more than mine. Um, I mean, I would just add sort of a quick, no, it's really just sort of highlighting what, what Julia said. And I think the one thing that always kind of strikes me about climate science is someone who, you know, does not have, I mean, I read plenty of PDFs, but um, I, you know, have basically a, a layman's understanding of it, um, is just like that there is sort of no normal, no new normal. It's not as right. if we'll reach some point at which, like, oh, well, all of the hurricanes are stronger now or it's hotter now. Um, I think, you know, I, I just finished reading um, David Wallace Wells' book mm. on the uninhabitable Earth. And, and I thought, you know, he 
he kind of puts this, he puts this very well in that, you know, just every, um, every, you know, thing we know right now about climate change is based on the body of knowledge that we have about the world as it is. And so um, we can only, you you know, predict so much about, about what the world will look like. And he, he cribs this phrase from um, Donald Rumsfeld actually about uh, uh, known unknowns and, mm. and, and the scariest thing are the, are the unknown unknowns. So there's this whole, you know, potential field of things that we um, simply can't, you know, can't know about. Um, that that may well uh, come about in in a world that's uh, 1.5 or two degrees warmer, and and certainly more of those things. Um, when you talk about further levels of warming that are just endlessly more catastrophic at 2.5 and three, and and you know beyond that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you know there's just so much difference, and I think this is really something that's sunk in for me recently is just the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees and you know 2.5 degrees and even you know between 2 degrees and 2.1 degrees is just so vast right. in terms of the sorts of human impacts that it has and, and ecological impacts that it has in the world and so there really isn't sort of a a point of no return at which you know we've just crossed some threshold and oh well you know we give up and just uh, resort to living in a in a hellscape um the, <laughs> that that point yeah. really you know just that i mean maybe maybe it will come in like two years or something but certainly within within our lifetimes and, and probably within the lifetimes of, of you know today's children um yeah. it can always get much 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 worse and so that's i think why i get frustrated when i see you know some of the more kind of doomsday type um language around this just because mm. you know there's not uh, uh there's always a reason to keep fighting nobody mm. ever gets nobody ever gets to give up right? yeah because anything we do will diminish suffering and harm yeah. i i think that that's a great segue and you guys maybe are almost sort of starting to answer the question that i i wanted to follow that with which is you know, as we're saying, um, the crisis that we're facing is unfathomably serious. And um, I'm emphasizing unfathomably because it does feel like the information we're getting is so overwhelming that even among, you know, like, quote unquote, climate believers, it can lead to a new kind of denialism, um, you know, on sort of in sort of two directions. One is that the effects of change are so unfathomably devastating that people can't think about them without getting overwhelmed. Or on the other hand, the changes seem like they're going to be so drastic that they're that people literally cannot conceptualize them and, and then they can't be real or possible. And I feel like both of these reactions make it hard to get people organized around the issue. And I was wondering sort of how do we respond to those very those two very, I think, human like impulses um, upon, you know, really thinking clearly about what is going to change in the next decades. Yeah. And I would just add, I mean, at least from my understanding, I think like, of course, what you're saying, Kellen, is like, especially with this direness, like we, there are people who at least deny like the severity of it. But I would say that um, from my understanding, climate denying is a pretty U.S. centric thing. It's also in China, but that's like a media issue um, more so in terms of my understanding. But I think globally, we don't see as much denying um, because in part because areas of the world are experiencing these extreme serious changes firsthand. 
Well, I mean, yeah, the U.S. is too, but I, I guess my question is less about, like, denying or believing in climate, more like even for, for people setting aside the question of, of you know, climate change denialists, mm-hmm. people who, you know, I think there are, there are reactions to this, um, to the reality that we're facing that can be paralyzing in one of two ways. Sure. Um, and I guess, so that's kind of, you know, how do we move people out of the paralysis stage? Mm-hmm. Kate? Yeah. How do we move people out of paralysis? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think this takes many forms, right? Like, I mean, climate denial is such a, a big category, I think, that we've understood as something so narrow for so long, in part because of the success of the right and the fossil fuel industry and just spreading disinformation about what climate change actually means, which is still, unfortunately, so hugely influential in our own country, um, actually in Australia, which is um, sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. They have their own climate deniers. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as you sort of brought up, there's a, also this sort of like human, um, very human sort of reaction to, to learning all this stuff, which I think some people have called kind of everyday denialism, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's just such a, such a huge problem I mean people talk about it as sort of like a hyper object like you can't understand it through any one real lens um and you know looking at one impact really does not give you a sense for just the the sort of vast scale of it um and I think the answer to that historically and how to how to get people to understand it um has been very shaped by neoliberalism which teaches Mm -hmm. us that everything is an individual problem in that you know we uh we we all have you know the um the tools to to change it in our in our own lives so you know i think this is informs a lot of the kind of green consumerism um of like the early sort of 2000s and mm-hmm. and extending into today that you know if you buy a prius or you um recycle enough or um get organic produce or something that that will be sort of your ticket to salvation and kind of like a modern day mm. indulgence mm-hmm. um and that is you know that is the answer when, when you know we know that's not not true i mean we know of course that you know um i think there's a there's a sort of nuanced conversation to be had about individual consumption choices but certainly like the answer is not that you buy a tesla um <laughs> and what very <laughs> people can buy Teslas, you know, they're, they're expensive cars. Um, mm. And so I think something that is exciting about this political moment is that we actually have like a problem, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Um, we actually have a, a answer, at least, you know, the most holistic answer we have had um, to this crisis in the U.S. for a long time in the form of proposals for a Green New Deal. And there's plenty of, of organizing and activism that people can get involved in along those lines. Um, that's really exciting. I mean, and that's, you know, sort of simple stuff like uh, going to harangue your legislator who is not, um, has not done it. I don't, I don't think it's only sort of lobbying. Like I think, you know, there's plenty of other, other stuff you can um stuff you can do to sort of make that case and you know it's like fighting your utility in in your backyard um as folks are doing against pg&e in Mm -hmm. uh california which you know has is uh, has historically fought uh better uh 
renewable portfolio standards and things like that um, has been sort of dragged along by state policy there, um, but is culpable uh, by their own admission for the uh, campfire in uh, 2018 and the fires in 2017. Um, and, you know, is, is, I think, could be really an exciting place for uh, to think about how to how to bring a utility under public ownership that's so big. Um, but, you know, there's all of these sort of fights, and that's, that, that's sort of like dull nature of this, right, is that it's so big, but there's so many ways to um, to get involved and so many entry points to sort of not not feeling helpless. Mm. And I think one of them, I, w- I would just add one thing to that, which is that the, the neoliberal emphasis on individual action as the way to go has also had a had a sort of parallel with market-based solutions from a policy perspective, that the only way that it's acceptable to save the environment and lives and our the ecosystems that we depend on is if it also makes monetary sense, mm-hmm. which when you say it that way, sounds crazy because it is but um (laughs) but that's been the the reality of of decision making that has sort of been devolved to the market there was there's really been this ideology that says the market is the king you know it's in economics it's the second theorem of welfare economics that says market equilibrium is where socially beneficial outcomes happen and that's not true it's not even true in economics the, the, the theorem doesn't hold in any real-world circumstance. But that's sort of the, the idea that's been ruling our lives. And I think that one of the things that's really great about the Green New Deal um, and about the, the, the current movements that are happening now and the way that people like Kate and like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the people who are sort of communicating about this now is that they've really somehow managed to like undo the, the lock of rhetoric and really free people's perception of what's possible. And that it doesn't have to be market solutions. And that it doesn't have to turn a profit. You know, the, the, the solution that's going to save the world does not also have to turn a profit for us, for it to be worthy for us to do it. That there are things that we can actually choose to do that might cost a bit more and they might be a bit inconvenient. And who cares because they're actually worth doing. And this is true for everything that we actually want to do. And like all the important things that are worth doing in society and in life deserve to be protected from the market. And so that's one of the things that I think is really uh, powerful about this new moment is that we're freeing ourselves from all kinds of bad things, including these sort of shackles of the mind that have kept us from from being able to do anything positive for as far as I can tell, the last four decades. Hell yeah. Yeah. Free yeah, ourselves it, from the shackles yeah. of our minds. It's a feel like a very Emma Goldman mood and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that's exactly right. And I think there's like this whole other realm of, you know, what I would call climate denial, which is, um, I think, less sympathetic than people kind of, you know, absorbing 40 years of neoliberalism um, into their own lives and, and just this totally absurd, um, as Julie talked about, faith in, in uh, the market to, to solve this problem. The, the kind of craziest articulation of this that I saw um, I think I think this was on Twitter a little while ago, and it was I think an economist um, 
who I will not name, but uh, <laughs> he's not very famous, um, but but said something along the lines. Uh, he was talking about the social cost of carbon, which is this um, metric created I, um, by as this uh, and popularized by this economist William Nordhaus, who won the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, we all groan now. Groan. <laughs> uh, yeah, collective groan for William Nordhaus. Um, but anyway, like sets the social cost of carbon, which is supposed to be the sort of like, uh, if markets were efficient, then the right price would be X. Um, and so he, uh, this guy is talking about about the social cost of carbon and you know what this means for climate solutions. And he says, well, you know. We can only set the social cost of carbon um, at what it is. And if we don't get uh, climate reduction then, then, you know, maybe it's just not important because the markets say that it's not. <laughs> as, as if, like, you know, oh, we did it. You know, we set this price. And we can only provide that market signal. And oh, well, if not. Um, and I was floored which uh, floored by what I, I understand to be a fairly mainstream position in the field of economics mm. <laughs> just that sure. if you just set, set the price right on something then you know all else will follow which is just I mean it's it's like has been absurd for a very long time but I think we think about yeah. climate change it's particularly absurd yes and I think it segues well into eco-socialism because the these excuses from e in economic terms so basically what I, because starting from physics I had to learn something about economics um, but the, the main thing you have to learn is sort of how to fight back against mainstream economics if you want to do anything reasonable in the world of economics you have to learn the mainstream stuff and then you have to learn why the heck it's so wrong and yes. where it's coming from <laughs> mm -hmm. yes. and the reason the the reason these things exist I don't think these these people care about being wrong so much but that the apparatus of these kinds of viewpoints is an apparatus the most important thing is not where it focuses the attention it's where it distracts the attention and the thing it's distracting the attention from is power is profit and is capitalism mm -hmm. these are all mm -hmm. things that are there to protect existing power structures and increasing inequality uh, you know, basically the rich getting richer, the poor getting poor. That's what mainstream economics is designed to help keep happening. Yes. So that we don't mm -hmm. care about any, we don't worry about any of the important stuff like distribution and fairness and a chance at life. But we care about these, the market has to get it right. The market is designed by the powerful. The market is not an abstract thing. It has no decision-making power of its own. The decisions are made by people and they are made by powerful people. Mm -hmm. And once you, once you understand that, you're, you're, that mainstream economics is designed to hide that and yes. to make us not care about it, um, then you then you you start seeing the world in a slightly different way. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just I wanted to kind of go back a little bit to you know Zoe had asked about like what does the future of climate change look like in terms of you know what are we going to be seeing what are these changes that are going to be happening, and I wanted to ask a question that is more on the social economic end of that. Um, I guess I'm just curious as to like what the effects of mass urbanization will be um, in your minds, where we see a lot of farmers and a lot of people who have lived in rural villages being not only pulled into the globalized economy through um, the like hyper globalization of our products, uh, 
but also being pushed, you know, there's a push and pull factor, right? Pushed out of rural spaces, possibly due to environmental factors, but also pulled to urban spaces because of waged employment through factory work and globalized economic systems. But this is happening on such a massive scale and on such a fast scale that I think these, I guess this urbanization shift feels pretty significant to the future of climate change as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I can say a few things. I mean, this is definitely not um, super my, my area of expertise, but um, yeah, I I think there's just a big choice here. Like the, the shift over the last uh, several decades, as, as Mike Davis really points out, is toward cities. Um, people are moving towards cities. They're becoming much bigger and, and, you know, in a lot of places, massive, just, just sort of, uh, yeah, like unfathomably big places. Um, and what that has looked like in a lot of places is um, just a lot of sort of insane inequality mm-hmm. um, within within cities. Um, you know, I think we, we see this. I live in New York. We see this here, of course. Um, I think, you know, I was, I was just out in... Uh, in California, and I think you know San Francisco and LA. I think the the homelessness crisis is is on a whole you know seems to be on on a on a different kind of level there, um, which I think is is really just sort of jarring to to see. So many folks are are just not being served by the city, um, and it, places in the global south. I think that's you know even more true. And you have sort of luxury high rises next to um, just massive camp encampments of unhoused folks. Um, Mm. And that, I think, (laughs) is, if we keep everything else the same uh, and have climate change on top of it, we'll see that um, just continue, especially with things like crop failures as folks move into urban areas because they can't farm the lands that their their families lived on. Um, And if there's not sort of a social infrastructure to support folks to do that, um, then I think that creates a very um, hard situation, especially for those folks um, who are who are moving in. Um, but I think that's a choice, right? Like this is a choice that we ha- have um, to continue um, to leave folks in uh, extreme poverty who are who are coming into cities. Um, and I think we could also imagine cities being. Uh, incredible places in, mm-hmm. in, in the next several years. I mean, I think that's, um, there's been this sort of like neoliberal rhetoric about cities that by virtue of living in a city, you are um, being green because you like go to Whole Foods and live in an apartment when in fact, like the consumption habits of like these very wealthy people in the city are um, hugely, hugely carbon intensive because, you know, tend to buy more imported goods or um, traveling more often to like business trips across uh, across the Atlantic um, and things like that. But there's also, you know, this sort of massive opportunity that we have to build, um, for instance, massive amounts of public housing in sure. cities that's uh, beautiful and affordable. Um, there is, you know, the potential just to sort of reimagine like, what we think about um, as the social safety net in um, in cities at the at the municipal level, um, which I, I think, you know, there's a lot of room for, um, 
for just exciting, exciting policy in that regard. And I don't think that's to say like, I think it's easy to focus, to overfocus on cities sometimes. Totally. And, and especially, especially in the U S there is, you know, I think a lot of attention to be paid to rural folks and to, um, and to folks in suburbs and figuring out, you know, what it looks like to bring, um, to bring those places like fully along in the transition and build affordable housing, for instance, that's, that's no carbon, um, in, in those places in, in rural areas and, um, in uh, suburbs and, and things like that. And so I think, you know, in, in the U S um, we definitely need to kind of nuance the picture of, of, of cities a bit, but um, yeah, I think they're, they're here and, and everywhere else kind of a place of incredible opportunity and just incredible risk as, as we look to, you know, future, um, future changes that, that climate change will bring about in terms of um, I think, internal migration is, is something that, you know, gets, gets kind of short shrift and, and, and doesn't get talked about enough that will be, you know, huge just for, for mm. states and cities. Mm. I will just add, um, to pitch a different podcast. Um, Kate, you were on, um, Daniel Denver's The Dig. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, this was, I guess a few months ago, but y'all opened with a vignette from one of your pieces, but hearing it, um, is almost different than reading it, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people end up being too depressed after the tone of this um, <laughs> podcast episode, I would say go listen to that one because uh, they talk about, Kate, you did such a great job of like illustrating if we do the right things, what our future might look like. And I I don't know the last time that I've ever felt hopeful about the climate, but I, I was oh, writing that high for like three oh. hours, which is a long time for me to feel hopeful. So <laughs> it was great. Thank you so much. That's great to hear. Yeah. Well, that's a great transition to talking about socialism. Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> yes. um, so the phrase eco-socialism or bust has been thrown around a lot, which is also reminiscent of the phrase, which I'm going to attempt in French, le feminisme au le mot, which means feminism <laughs> or death. Um, and that was the title of the founding text on eco-feminism by Francois de Bon. Um, her idea ideologies surround the notion that the exploitation of the earth and the exploitation of women are caused by patriarchal domination, uh, but left out a complete analysis of capitalism. So as socialist feminists, we know that the ideas of eco-socialism and eco-feminism are both inseparable and both true. So how is socialism and feminism, how are they uniquely able to create lasting climate action? Um, I guess I can jump in here. I think one of the things that's been quite interesting is seeing how the tone changes when you bring women into the conversation. And I'm seeing this happen in several different spheres. Um, and I, I, I don't know if this is a feminist perspective, but I'm just noticing the difference is that when, when you bring women into the conversation, they don't mess around. They don't feel like this is something that's subject to debate or that's a tool for prestige that's a tool for advancing their career or their social position. They feel like it's something they need to get done. And I don't think that this has to do, I don't necess, I don't really subscribe to like feeling close to the earth. I hate slugs. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel like a spiritual bond to stuff really, I guess. Um, but I, I think that there's a, there's a, there's an, there's an element of feeling responsible for the functioning of our communities and societies, that women do not have a tendency politically to pass the buck. Mm. 
And that I see this in professional settings. I see this when I'm, you know, um, debating certain topics with colleagues. It's much easier to debate when there's a woman in the room because there is not, there is somebody else to back me up against the voice of authority that says, well, of course we can keep doing this kind of investment or whatever. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, you don't. Not now. You know, this, we are not messing around anymore. This is not a time to try to be polite, to try to score points, to try to um, be comfortable. You know, so so for me, the I'm I'm seeing very concretely the fact that um, bringing women into the high levels of the climate debate. I mean, and look at Rashida Tlaib. Look look at Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. They're incredible. Yes, and there of course mm -hmm. are disappointing women, and we can talk about those too. But I I certainly think that bringing um, younger women of color into the debate really changes things in terms of of things becoming. Um, much more clear-cut and I think that the socialism aspect is also important um, because that's how we get but again this is how we get functioning societies and communities is is through socialism all the things we care about are achieved through socialism so that's the that would be my sort of shorthand for it it's not very theoretical but it's right so you know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah totally yeah I um yeah I mean I think I guess there are a couple of ways to go with this question. I mean, I think one thing, I, I have actually not read Feminism or Death. Um, it's been on the list for a while, but, um, you know, I think just looking at, like, the history of capitalism, like, it's very, very clear that, like, when we started to um, exploit the earth and start, you know, digging up for coal was also... Um, part of a very similar process by which we started to like really discipline women's roles in the home. And I think there's a sort of, yeah, there's this logic of domination that is just um, so deep. And I think it, it, it really, I think in, in some ways even goes a little bit beyond, beyond capitalism the way that like misogyny, you know, has, has, um, is, has a longer, has had a longer shelf life than capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> But unfortunately, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I I would similarly point to what really seems to be um, exciting activism that and organizing um, that I think is is very um, you know might not explicitly describe itself as eco socialist, but I you know I look at something like the teacher strikes in um, uh, around the country and. West Virginia and Oklahoma and LA and now Oakland. Um, and I think that is the future of what low carbon work looks like. It's like having sort of like militant unions and work that um, is really just far more oriented around creating strong communities. Um, and I think, you know, we talk about green jobs often as being um, not that that this isn't included, but I think green jobs can get talked about almost exclusively as like really like burly men hoisting uh, mm -hmm. solar panels onto homes and, um, you know, building wind turbines and things like that. And that's all obviously, those are all obviously green jobs, but I think um, the maybe even more, um, not more, but, but, you know, what's also a part of that picture um, is also this work that simply isn't low carbon and it's really oriented toward, um, care. I mean, it's care, you know, in a, in a basic sense for community and for society. So that's teaching, I think, of, you know, nursing, 
um, things like elder care. Um, I think that those are, you know, the the green jobs certainly I am interested in seeing. And I think as we've seen in the past um, couple months, those sorts of, you know, more um, care-based professions are, that's been traditionally feminized labor. And um, in the last several months and, and, you know, last year has been, also the site of some of the most like militant labor organizing uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, you know, when I, when I think about hope for kind of like uh, our eco-socialist future, I think I, I really do think of like, uh, you know, the teachers and, um, and even uh, in more like, very, very complicated ways, um, flight attendants um, who, you know, have a incredibly militant union. And I think, you know, serve to we, we should be thinking about what a dress transition looks like um for um, flight attendants and how to decarbonize you know the the airline sector and um you know take the all of the sort of like other very carbon intensive industries we don't we don't talk about as much um and figure out you know how to how to set our center workers in, in in the in the transition to decarbonization so you know folks don't get screwed over so yeah. I thought it was a little bit of a rant. <laughs> no, sorry. No, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to add kind of more about from the research I've done with how climate change affects women and girls um, differently and more in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of countries where I was just reading about this, where women and girls are responsible for gathering food and water. And if those resources are becoming more scarce, it actually like inhibits girls from being able to go to school because they're home, like helping their moms trying to find water that they can't find or like collect, you know, food that is just becoming more and more scarce. Um, And then also in the U.S. and in post-industrialization, we see low-income women, especially women of color, are more likely to have jobs that put them um, in environments with toxic chemicals. Um, but I think that's also part of why we see so many young women and girls like leading these um, climate strikes and the climate justice movement, which I was interested because, Julia, you wrote an article about the gaslighting of those mm-hmm. young girls in the UK. And Kate, you wrote somewhat similarly about the get off my lawn caucus of U.S. politicians. <laughs> so we see like wherever this is happening and especially a movement being led by young girls is faced with such scrutiny. Um, so I want to talk about that and then just tag on this question we got on Twitter, which was, can you offer tips on resisting the urge to strangle those who offer reflexive bad faith responses that such (laughs) things can't be done and only a market solution is possible? So I thought that (laughs) fit in with this question well. Right. So I think, uh, strangling people who make those kinds of comments, I mean, feeling, not strangling, I shouldn't say that right. (laughs) Feeling, (laughs) did I say that? Feeling like strangling them is a completely legitimate, insane response. But, yes. um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's usually also it's usually impractical because it's usually through the internet. Um, but I think that this is when when these kinds of things are happening. And I think what Kate was saying um, earlier about two choices. We really have different choices here. We're really faced with you know a fork in the path, and that fork in the path corresponds to worldviews. And I think that that fork in the path really corresponds to a different perspective on what the world is, what our purpose is, what our lives are for, what what our societies and civilization is about. And things could not be di- more different. And choosing between 
professions of destruction and professions of care, choosing between activities that lift each other up and protect each other and activities that are meant to prey upon and exploit each other. We really have this, you know, it's, 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 it, it seems a bit crazy to put in such a mannequin, sort of black and white, um, either or way. But I think that these kinds of interactions really allow to bring out these really deep differences. So we're really talking about conflicting understanding and, and goals of the economy and society. And we can use those moments when people are advocating for market-based solutions and so on to show what they're really propping up. They're propping up a certain structure of power. They're making excuses and they're perpetuating in a destructive and exploitative economy that has as enemies, you know, women, children, um, poor people, and also, as it so happens, our habitat. So the, the, the planet and the processes we depend upon to actually live. We don't depend upon the market to live as much as we depend upon food and, you know, those kinds of things. So I think that we're, we're and when we look at the, the common thing that's, that's causing that harm and that would be perpetuated through these, that would be protected, the thing that they're protecting by insisting on market-based solutions, it has a name and we call it capitalism. And so when we can name capitalism as the thing that's sort of the, the monster that's, that's sort of hiding behind these different aspects of the, the things that are harming us in our societies, that allows us to act. And so if we, can, if we can bring the discussion up to that level and say, okay, these are the things that are really happening. Market solutions act to protect that and harm us in all these various different ways then we can start act, um, reacting differently and say, okay, well, that okay, all we need to do is bring down fossil capitalism. Okay, well, let's get on with it. And <laughs> I think, which, you know, it's just a one, it's, it's one, it's a one item to do list. Mm -hmm. Love those. Um, so, so, and in terms of supporting the movement, so the idea of how we support the youth strikes or how we support um, the, there, there's another, um, there's an, there's the, the, so there's the student strikes that are happening, but there's this other um, mobilization that I wanted to mention um, here, which uh, they actually have a website called the studentecologicalmanifesto.com. Mm. And it's a movement from the students there where they're basically saying, we refuse to work for harmful industry. Mm. And mm. I have not seen anything more powerful or in some sense more socialist. I don't think they call themselves socialist. But what they're doing is, is they're saying we have the right to use our labor for productive and not destructive purposes. Our work will be for the good of each other. We refuse to make profits for those who harm others. And they're just saying that. And uh, so far in France, where this started, more than 20,000 students signed up to it. And I hope that now it's going worldwide. I think that with the student uh, strike movement, there's certainly an echo for it to go worldwide. And what that means is that means that young people, this generation rising up, is and the Sunrise Movement are an articulation of that as well, right? They're saying we have the right to good jobs that build each other up, that build a positive future up. And what Kate was saying about care professions being the core of a good economy or of a functioning society that taking care of each other, teaching each other, creating good social functions for each other. That's, that's, that's green. That's, you know, greener than social pa solar panels in some ways, but th that people have the right that they're getting the sense of their own power, that we have the right to work for a decent future and for a future that's not killing each other. And I think that 
building that movement and bringing that clarity of where the dividing lines are and what we're up against and calling out the powerful who are doing things, you know, like Teresa May saying, oh, well, you should go to school and become scientists. You're just, you know, wasting everybody's time by doing these silly student strikes. And I'm only slightly paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's truly evil, but it also points to her own actions, right? She's been wasting everybody else's time. She's been waste. She's wasting the past time that we could have been acting on this stuff effectively. And she's wasting the future in terms of like literally carrying out actions that are going to be diminishing the life chances and reducing literally the life expectancy of children who are, who are uh, alive now. Mm-hmm. And so when, the, when, you know, when they, they, when they bring that kind of criticism, I think that we can respond and turn it back on them and make it clear what's, what's really at stake here. Um, and, and bring it back to this bigger picture. That's what I hope for. Awesome. Her response was, um, I think, uh, tellingly similar to the one that we saw from Diane Feinstein when she was mm-hmm. confronted by children recently. Um, and yes. I, I don't think there's a coincidence there. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to add, um, briefly on, uh, you know, on the, on the student strikes in the UK and on, um, that confrontation with Diane Feinstein, it's really, yeah, it's just really striking. And I think, you know, uh, women and, and girls have been um, really sort of given short shrift on this for a very long time. And I mean, I think, you know, also of all of the incredible women organizers in the environmental justice movement who um, just been ignored, um, you know, raising the alarm bell about the impacts of extraction and um, toxic waste in their communities for years and years and years. Um, and, you know, I think that's another, and I think, you know, particularly, um, often racist way of, of, you know, kind of invisibilizing the mm-hmm. full sort of scope of, of environmental impacts. Um, but I, you know, I think we see this in all sorts of ways, like, like from the strikes to, um, the folks who joined Sunrise and, and Diane Feinstein's office, um, there's just, just really sort of like pervasive idea that like they don't really know what they're doing like uh you know the folks who are or you know being um confrontational or emotional or you know are just you know not really speaking with any sort of policy expertise when like the exact opposite is true right Mm -hmm. like science is not stuttering on just how quickly we need to move um and the demands from student strikers and the demands from um sunrise and and their allies are that you know we need to get this transition done very very quickly or we're all screwed and so i think you know you just see um folks who are who are saying that just are in touch with the science and the folks like diane feinstein like Theresa may who are saying we can go more slowly, that there are other routes to this, you know, that, that we have more, more options and more time, um, are clearly out of touch with the science. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think especially, you know, when there's not any sort of alternative on offer, if centrist Democrats had an alternative proposal for a massive economy-wide mobilization to take the United States to net zero emissions by 2030, I would love to see it, frankly. That would be an interesting conversation if there were some alternative proposal to do that on the table, but there just isn't. Um, nobody else, you know, has a real sense for what that would look like beyond the Green New Deal. Um, 
and beyond, you know, declaring an emergency on, on uh, climate change is, you know, the Greta Thunberg who, you know, started uh, in many ways the sort of momentum for these student strikes um, has, has said we need to do. Um, and so I think that, you know, that voice of urgency is just the right one. <laughs> like, there's not, I think it gets talked about um, as being uh, an argument in some ways. It's like they, you know, have different, um, they're chasing the same ends, but, you know, they are approaching different means. And, and the ends that both sides of that conversation have in mind are just not the same. Like, Diane Feinstein is not pursuing a science-based pathway um, mm-hmm. for decarbonization. And, like, I think just, like, naming that, like, the folks who are the most urgent on this are the ones who the science is backing up. Um, and, you know, that that's at least, you know, are, is much closer in that direction from, from all the, the studies that I've read um, to, you know, a just massive urgent transition um, then, you know, well, you know, we're not going to get this done in 10 years with Diane Feinstein's quote in that, that horrible exchange. <laughs> well, she just kind of reads like a psychopath. Sorry to not be like politically <laughs> correct at all, but it's just like, <laughs> dude, get your head out of your ass. Like my favorite part of that interaction was when she talked about her million vote plurality. Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It's so yeah. fucked. Sorry. <laughs> and you both and, like said all of this very eloquent stuff, and I'm just like, mm. psychopath. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> but it, but it, but I think that that's one of the things that's really interesting here is that when you see, you know, uh, articulate, vocal, clear militantism, you know, mo- movements and people carrying the voice of those movements saying we need urgent action. This is not negotiable. This is not something that we're willing to sit down and be polite about. Yeah. The future of our lives is at stake. We're going to act like it is, which is what the student strikes and the Sunrise Movement are doing. Um, the response of the politicians is telling in and of itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. So th- I think that that's, that's also uh, um, to the credit of these movements that they forced these responses out into the open and shown how unacceptable they are is that when you're taking that position of delay, which is a position of increased death, of increased, I mean, it's it's so reckless. I can't, knowing knowing even, I'm not, you know, I'm not on this, an, a massive expert on the climate science side because I'm on the sort of most more economic side of it. But it's so incredibly reckless, just from what I know, that we're messing with systems. We are already messing with systems that we have so little understanding of. We're, we're, we're facing these tipping points. They could be happening right now or we might be able to stave them off. You know, for, for, for God's sake, for the sake of everything, you anybody who has an ounce of responsibility would be moving us in the opposite direction, would be saying, we need to stop emitting, we need to change our economies completely, we need to do whatever it is that's necessary for survival right now. And that, that these politicians are saying, oh no, let us just keep doing our jobs as usual, how dare you speak up? really forces them out into the open. Yes, as psychopaths. I mean, yes, there's, there is something absolutely deadly about that response. Right. And I think that, yeah. that, that that response being forced out into the open and exposed for what it is, ex- exposing business as usual as this death cult, basically, yeah, totally. is something that's really important to do right now. And I'm willing to use these words. And, and I mean, university, university people are not supposed to use these words. I'm willing <laughs> to use them because I'm, 
I I think I understand reality yes. as described in the IPCC mm-hmm. reports, as exposed yep. by the research of my colleagues, and I you know there. I just can't fathom somebody who would have access to that reality and to that knowledge and and be saying, oh, well, you know, just give us some more time. A market solution will emerge through the invisible hand of the market. It's just, <laughs> no, th- th- we're all going to die. Yeah, right? for sure. Anyway, so yes, it is, it, psychopathic is correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Seconded. So we're, I think we're, we're coming up to the end of our time, but um, we got so many questions on Twitter about the Green New Deal. Um, I should let our listeners know that we are planning an episode upcoming on just this topic. Um, But we did want to close out sort of talking about what the Green New Deal might mean um, for the United States and the world. Um, So I was wondering if one of you would be willing to give us just a brief summary of this massive and sometimes it feels ill-defined thing. Yeah. And then as like a piggyback onto this and sorry that this is like kind of a big question for the end and we don't have a ton of time, but um, (laughs) I think like similarly to what it is, like I, I'm one of these people. So for those of us that feel conflicted about the electoral system in the United States and worry about legislator, legislature like the Green New Deal that could just be overturned, um, I guess like what is the Green New Deal, but also what are some other ways for us to fight for environmental justice outside of the legislative branch? Um, and we have talked about that a little bit, but just kind of like tacking that piece into there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very small question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just in a word or two, if you could just, you know, describe that. <laughs> yeah, well, to start with the Green New Deal. So the Green New Deal, um, as you alluded to means many different things to many different people. The most arrived at definition we have for what that would look like is from a resolution introduced by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey a couple weeks ago, uh, which lays out several projects they would have to be a part of it and is really kind of a statement of principles for what that would look like. And so what they define um, are some goals. So the top line one is to get the economy to net zero uh, emissions by 2030, which is a hugely, hugely ambitious goal. Um, and uh, while doing that, um, make people's lives better and also you know, do the various things that um, d- deep decarbonization will require. Uh, and so that means for that document, um, implementing a federal job guarantee, which often gets talked about as an add-on to the Green New Deal, but is actually very important to decarbonization uh, in that there's simply just a lot of work that is bound up in carbon-intensive supply chains, um, which is some of the only work available to many people. And so having uh, a well-paid option beyond that, I think, is, is key to decarbonizing uh, decarbonizing uh, our economy. Um, also included in that in that document um, are things like a guarantee to housing, um, which is very important. Um, and I think just sort of begins to sketch out the scope of what this will what this will need to look like. Um, part of that, you know I think which is the a big nut to crack when it comes to decarbonize decarbonization is, electrification and so 
about 20% of um, the economy runs on uh, electrification right now, which is sort of a crazy figure considering, you know, I think we, I at least tend to think of like a lot of things as being run off electricity, but in fact, a lot of um, systems we rely on, whether that's air conditioning or cars, um, are uh, based on consumption or, or combustion-based um, activities, which um, require require fossil fuels. And so, um, by um, electrifying many more industries, um, you can then run them off of renewable power, um, which is which is a you know huge thing that requires a sort of um, massive uh, upgrade to our grid system, which. Um, from everything I've read, if we were to bring on 100% renewable power tomorrow, the grid would not be able to support it. And so that's like a massive infrastructure project. Um, and so, yeah, what the, what the Green New Deal sort of proposes to do is get all of that work done um, while ensuring, um, A, that nobody is screwed over by this transition, that the folks who have been historically, folks in communities who have been historically reliant on uh, fossil fuels and um, certain types of extraction um, are guaranteed a dignified quality of life uh, once we take fossil fuels out of our economy um, and also um, stands to make many other parts of our economy more fair. And that's, you know, both um, through some of the reasons I mentioned around why that's important for decarbonization itself, but um, I think it's also important politically um, in terms of, you know, not just uh, focusing on um, on the sort of quote-unquote climate policy proper as we've, as we've understood it for the last 20 or 30 years in U.S. policymaking, which um, doesn't work mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, does not, um, is not a sort of attractive political sell um, to a lot of people just say, you know, you have to um, pay more in the case of a carbon tax um, to, you know, go to work, um, to, you know, eat your home, things like that. Um, that is the sort of logic that climate policy making has operated on for a very long time is that, um, you know, everybody will need to sacrifice something in order, um, in order to solve this problem. Um, and what the Green New Deal does very brilliantly is reframe climate policy as an issue of investment. Um, and so there are parts of our economy which we can, um, which we can look to, you know, liquidate. I would say in the case of the fossil fuel industry, um, mm. and uh, as we do that, we can build out other parts of the economy to um, include more people in them, um, which they've, you know, excluded for a very long time. So that's that's the sort of small promise of of the Green New Deal. And I think I think the the resolution does, you know, it's not perfect. Um, but does a, a, a decent job um, kind of laying laying that out, which I would encourage folks to um, to check out and you know quibble with and challenge. And you know I think that it's it's something the meaning of, of what a green new deal means um, in terms of how to implement it will be thought over, rightfully so in the next couple of years. Um, we'll see this in the 2020 race. Um, you know, every campaign will have their um, their own. Form of the Green New Deal, I'm sure, um, as as they um, get further down the Democratic primary um, primary lane, um, and I'm sure some of them will be quite bad. Um, <laughs> so, uh, making sure that you know 
that is defined uh, along the lines we need it to be defined um, will be will be a, a big task. And I think folks like Sunrise are really are really interested in, in, in making sure that you know the integrity of the Green New Deal is, is maintained um, up until when it is hopefully implemented into law. Um, but you know that I think gets to the second part of your question, which is um, just you know how hard that will be. Um, I mean, the the political power of the fossil fuel industry cannot be understated. Um, in the last um, midterm cycle, they spent $40 million in Colorado fighting some very common sense regulation. Mm-hmm. They spent uh, over $30 million in Washington fighting a fairly modest carbon tax that had some uh, Green New Deal investment tied to it. Um and uh, we, uh, yeah, I think that that will be sort of the, the biggest challenge today, as I see it, to over um, to to overcome uh, as as we're thinking about getting this passed. But there's all sorts of work that you know is not is 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 not that um, which you which you mentioned, um, and I think part of that you know is. Um, Part of that exciting work is, is happening sort of at the state level. Um, you know, there's a campaign in New York where I live called New York Renews, which is um, looking to get sort of a version of the Green New Deal passed here, um, which is, you know, is going through state legislature, but is also sort of the product of um, environmental justice communities here, of um, longtime climate organizers. Um, and so I think, you know, engaging in that in those sorts of, of coalitions is, is really exciting. Um, and I think that the kind of way that, that some of this stuff happens is, is by, you know, having this come from the folks who have been doing this work for a very long time and um, kind of know, you know, know what's needed and know what to push for. Um, I mean, I mentioned this earlier. I've been really excited about some of the work um, happening around uh, public utilities. Um, there are some really interesting um, BSA eco-socialist campaigns around, um, you know, kind of ratepayer justice and mm-hmm. then um, sort of scaling that up into um, public ownership of utilities, um, which I, I, yeah, I think is just, you know, a, a really brilliant way to make something that's just so deeply unsexy um, an exciting campaign like utility um, and energy regulation is just so hard um, it's like so hard to make that exciting but um, yeah I think that's that's another another kind of entry point in that which is to say you know I think the Green New Deal is a, is a great framework and there are you know any number of things happening at the state and local level that, that folks can get involved in that's great. Anything else to add, Julia? Yeah, um, I think that one of the things that the Green New Deal does really fantastically is that it does this thing of reversing the logic of harm and exploitation that we were talking about before at the intersection of feminism and eco-socialism, which is that we have this joint harm that is harming society, creating inequality, exploiting, deriving profits, hollowing out the core of society that we're seeing at work throughout all industrialized economies, but it's also destroying the planet. And what eco and what the green no deal does is it ties at the hip. It really reverses that logic and says we can do things completely differently, both environmentally and socially. We can have jobs guarantee and those jobs can be jobs that are going to protect 
our environment and our societies rather than harm them. And sort of every step of the way is trying to turn a logic of harm and exploitation into a logic of positive um, action and, and protective action. And I think that people really see that, what they want from their government in the end and what they want from society, the, with the things we do in society is we want to protect each other. We want to protect each other from harm and allow each other to live lives where people can, you know, do whatever the heck they want to do in their life, but they can do it because they're not being um, uh, harmed by ill health or bad living conditions or having to work 14 hours a day or whatever it is. So I think that people, once they see those connections being made, once they see the principle at work of a good society that has as it as its mission creating a livable environment, that becomes incredibly attractive. And that's something worth fighting for. It's not, you know, like, let's go out and march for a carbon tax. Okay, I can do that. I've, I've, I've done that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's so much more exciting to be fighting for a new social project that's also an environmental project. And I think that the, in terms of the, the electoral side of it, I'm almost less worried about that because the only reason the electoral side of it has a chance is because it's a movement that's being pushed because people see their survival and a positive future really anchored in those principles. So I think putting the principles forward and using those as well to, to, to counter the fossil fuel industry. And the fossil fuel industry is going to come with all kinds of denial tactics. But we kind of know what there are, and their time is done especially if we can argue against them comprehensively. So when they say, oh, you need fossil energy to lead a good life, it's like, actually, no, we know we don't. You know, so, so, so we can counter every single one of their arguments and expose them for the predatory and harmful industry that they, that they are. They should have exited stage right, you know, two decades ago. Well, maybe they can do so now and really fast. But I think the, the, the point of saying, oh, the Green New Deal is just legislative, the principles enshrined it in are not. And they're really quite eco-social, I would say. Well, I think that's that's going to be probably a great way to end this then um, on a that's that's kind of a high note, you know, <laughs> that's what we're going to get, I think. Um, well, I just want to thank you all both so much for um, for joining us today. Um, this was like such a densely packed, informative and really, really interesting episode. So we really appreciate you all coming on and talking to us. Yeah, thanks so much. This is fun. Thank you. Okay, that was an awesome interview. I feel like we learned a lot from that. Um, I also just wanted to touch upon this past week, the Eco-Socialist um, National DSA Working Group put out an Eco-Socialist Green New Deal Guiding Principles um, kind of package, which I wanted to read a couple excerpts from. So I kind of abridged this and just took pieces that I wanted to put them together. So it's all a quote, but it's a little bit mix-matched. For too long, our livelihoods have been undermined by the pursuit of profit. Land expropriation, mass murder, and slavery on a vast scale built the great fortunes, the markets in cotton and industrial goods, and the system of finance and extraction that are with us today. Their legacy is plain to see. People are starving while we throw away food. Buildings are empty while people sleep on the streets. Working class communities, especially those of color, are being poisoned by polluting industries that are wrecking the climate, all for the sake of making the rich richer. We demand justice and power for the people to determine our future, a future that belongs to everyone living and yet to live. We must warn all politicians that we will not accept a watered-down Green New Deal that they ex 
exploit as mere electoral slogan. They will either fight for the radical Green New Deal that emerges from our coalition or be exposed as collaborators with the ecocidal elite who have no concern for our future. Our role is to help build a militant mass working class movement that is powerful enough to secure human flourishing for all beyond the critical next decades, not just survival for some. Together, we can break the power of capitalists and guarantee the regeneration of a vibrant natural world that is home for humanity and all forms of life for many generations to come. It's a great way to end it. Um, yeah, I think there's so many aspects of eco-socialism that we didn't we didn't get to talk about. We didn't do we didn't get to talk a lot about the global north and the global south. We didn't get to talk a lot about, um, you know, native genocide and expropriation as much as I would have liked. But yeah, um, uh, I think that that passage gets at some of those issues that absolutely have to be part of any eco-socialist program, um, uh, recognizing, you know, the inequalities that capitalism uh, continues to perpetuate, <laughs> not expecting that we can we can continue that under socialism. Um, yeah, and we do want, as Kellen mentioned before, we do want to try to do at least another episode or maybe more um, on this topic because there's so much to talk about and so much we didn't get to. So if you're listening and you're like an expert on any of these things and you would like to help us do that, uh, reach out. Yeah, absolutely. And now Kellen will tell you how to do that. <laughs> yes. So you can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at seasonofthebee. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, we are online. Uh, we have cool t-shirts and sweatshirts. Uh, you can check those out at seasonofthebee.com slash merch. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, check out our Patreon. Also, you know, Season of the Bee. Um, throw some money our way. We would appreciate it. Helps us keep doing what we're doing. And finally, if you get the chance, go on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. It helps other people find us and hear great interviews like the one that you just heard. Um, so yeah, I think that about does it. Yep, that's all. All right. <laughs> Bye. All right. Bye. Love, Love you. you.